Well, uh, we're coming off a strange and interesting week uh, in the Christian world. Uh, we prayed this morning for Grace Community Church. That is appropriate. As many of you know, the Shepherds Conference took place at Grace this past week, and a lot was being said on social media about the conference and about the conference speakers, especially on Facebook and Twitter. Maybe you saw, maybe you didn't. Maybe this will be new information for you. But in the spirit of identifying trends in the church, which we've done recently, I thought I'd point out a couple of things that I noticed over this past week. First of all, I saw a whole number of really high-profile people on, on Twitter talking about Vody Bauckham's message. Uh, if you don't know who Vody is, I thought I'd bring a picture of him so you can see. That's Vody. Uh, I have always loved his passion for the truth and the stands that he takes. And a lot of people on Twitter and Facebook were posting this, this three-minute clip of, of Vody basically outlining the gospel of grace and citing a, a, a few key scriptures uh, that supported his case. And he laid it out beautifully. Don't get, don't get me wrong. He laid it out really well, but it was really just the basics of the gospel. And um, yet all these high-profile people on social media were just raving about how unique his message was. And how bold he was in preaching it. And it dawned on me, I thought to myself, that's interesting because we, we talk about that every week at Oak Hill. And we, we preach about it, we teach about it, we sing about the gospel of grace. And it dawned on me, God sort of opened my mind to this. There's a lot of churches that aren't used to that. There just aren't. There's a lot of people in churches beyond this valley, out there beyond these walls, that have people who are starving in the pews because they're not being taught the basics of the gospel. So, yeah, when they see something like Vody laying that out and then supporting it with the Bible, they're astonished. So a couple things to that. Number one, I praise God for Vody's ministry, uh, the fact that he is that bold. But number two, let, it, let me just say to you guys here at Oak Hill, let's not ever take it for granted that we love the gospel and that it's at the center of everything that we do. And so, um, yeah, let's, let's continue to have a passion to get that truth out there into the world because this is what the world needs. They need the gospel of God's grace. Amen? Second thing I noticed is we can, coincides with the passage that we're going to study for today. How many of you guys, actually don't, don't raise your hands. Maybe you caught all of the attacks on social media this week against Dr. MacArthur and against some of the uh, other conference speakers. And this happens every year at Shepherd's Conference. These people come out of the woodwork and they post hit pieces that dredge up old controversies and highlight certain teachings that they don't agree with. And the goal just seems to publicly smear the character of men who have devoted most of their lives to pastoring churches and preaching the truth. Now, not always perfectly. And yes, sometimes making mistakes, as we all do, but still faithful men who have devoted decades and decades of their life doing ministry. Sadly, there are many professing Christians out there who've made it their goal to stir up division online. It is everywhere. And to promote public controversies, public controversies where Christians are arguing with Christians in front of the world, acting just like the world, and in the process bringing harm to the testimony of our faith. Now, it struck me as I was processing through it this week and trying not to get frustrated. Uh, Jesus was involved in a whole lot of controversy in his day, wasn't he? And a whole lot of public arguments. And in today's passage, we're going to study yet another very sharp dispute that Jesus had with the religious establishment in Jerusalem. So the question is, what does all that have to do with the arguing that we're doing today? Well, first of all, there were times when Jesus went on offense. He did what we call polemics, right? He took, he took the, uh, the offensive position, instigating a confrontation. And then there were times when he was doing apologetics, when he was on the defense, when controversy came to him. And we're going to see an example of that today. Here's the thing, though. Consistently, you see Jesus battling over the right issues, over the essential issues. The issues where spiritual life and spiritual death hang in the balance, where it's truth or error, heaven or hell. In other words, Jesus never engaged in controversy unnecessarily. That's important to know. And I think we can learn from that example. Listen, there's no doubt that today as apostasy grows across this world that we have to stand up for truth. But we should always be cautious and careful when we do it publicly. 
If anyone in our body decides to point to another church or to another servant of Christ and engage in a public argument, there's a couple things that person should do. First of all, make sure that you've built a platform of credibility by the way you live. Make sure you've built a platform of credibility by the way you live, particularly in love and in humility and in generosity and in service, so that when you speak, you don't come off as a hypocrite who critiques others but never looks at yourself. That's number one. Second, remember it's the essentials that we are called to contend for. The essentials. Not all the juicy secondary issues that, that people love. That, you know, the Bible warns us against disputing over these secondary types of issues, the things that we can agree to disagree on. So we want to choose our battles wisely. We want to make sure that if we're going to publicly argue that it's over gospel issues, and whenever we argue in front of the world, we need to be careful and charitable towards one another. Amen? Grab your Bibles. Let's go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, find verse 22. Now, last Sunday we looked at verses 11 to 21. And as we did, two big ideas sort of came to the surface. One was God's sovereignty, and the other was sacrificial love. And here's how it played out. The good shepherd has his sheep, right? He has them. He possesses them, present tense. And they will hear his voice, and they will come to him and become part of his flock. That is sovereignty in action. And then we saw four times in eight verses that the good shepherd loves unto death. He willingly lays down his life, puts himself between danger and his flock. That is sacrificial love. And now we come to verse 22, and right out of the gate we see that we have a different context. Remember, everything that we've been covering, going all the way back to chapter 7, you may realize this, you may not, has all been one basic context. A number of things that have happened before during or just after the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. So all these things that Jesus has been saying recently, things like, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I am the light of the world. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. We saw the healing of the man born blind on the Sabbath, right? Then Jesus saying, I am the door, then I am the good shepherd. And at every step in those snapshots that we've been looking at, what you're seeing among the Jewish people who are listening to him is this division. People are listening to his words and they're dividing. Some saying he must be the Christ and others fuming over that very suggestion and actually saying the opposite. No, he's either insane or he's got a demon. So they're divided over him, right? But all of those remarkable things happened during the Feast of Tabernacles. By the way, the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the great three, pil the great three pilgrimage festivals of Israel, along with Passover and Pentecost. And if you look at Deuteronomy 16.16, 16, you will see that God required every adult male in Israel to travel to Jerusalem for these three festivals. So this one, Tabernacles, or Sukkot in the Hebrew, takes place in early October. Now, look at verse 22, and you'll see the context change. Verse 22, at that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Okay, so what we know now is fast forward a little more than two months. It's now wintertime, and we are at this different festival, this Feast of the Dedication, otherwise known as Hanukkah, right? We know that term, right? Celebrated in December. So that's the gap of time between verse 21 and verse 22, somewhere between two and two and a half months. And what comes next is going to be um, just a, a different story, a different conflict, but some of the same language coming through in Jesus' words. Now, Hanukkah is truly the most unique holiday on the Jewish calendar. Here's why. You won't find it listed anywhere in the Torah. It's not shown anywhere in the books of Moses or anywhere in the Old Testament because it celebrates a historical moment that took place long after the Hebrew canon was organized and put together. It actually celebrates a historical moment that took place in the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. You know what I'm going to do now, right? We're going to talk about my favorite period of time. I know, the intertestamental period. So, 175 B.C., Okay, so if you're new to Oak Hill, I apologize for the next 15 minutes that's coming your way. Um, history, pictures, diagrams, and things of that nature. 
So hang with me. In 175 BC, a king comes to power in Damascus named Antiochus IV. There's his coin, and I think the only bust that's ever actually been dug up of him with his nose broken off, which is quite ironic. That is the face of evil. That is the face of evil. You talk to, to somebody who's Jewish that knows their history. Adolf Hitler is, is number one on their list of enemies. This guy's 1B. 1A and 1B. It's that bad. That is the face of evil. Antiochus took on the name Epiphanes, which means in Greek, God manifests, so you can understand how highly he thought of himself. And we've talked about him many times here at Oak Hill, and on the underground, by the way, a quiz a few weeks ago about him, because he had played such a prominent role in a number of places in biblical history. In the book of Daniel, for example. Uh, in the intertestamental period. And most people believe that he is the forerunner and sort of the archetype of the final Antichrist who is still to come. Now you might recall that the Seleucid dynasty ruled over Israel during this period of the intertestamental time. And although their kingdom was located to the north of Israel in what we call Syria, ethnically the Seleucids were Greeks. They were a remnant of the armies of Alexander the Great who were still living in that region. Now, Antiochus was both ambitious and maniacal, and he utterly despised the Jewish people. Even though he conquered the land, he despised the people. By the way, in conquering Israel, he, he slaughtered about eighty to 100,000 of the Jews. That's all. And still he despised them, and primarily because they would not turn away from their ancient religion, which he didn't understand and he thought was complete nonsense. Because if you were Greek back in that day, the highest form of living was to be Greek, and anything other than Greek was a barbarian. And he despised the Jews. So he did everything possible to try to Hellenize the Jews, that is, to make them turn away from their culture and turn towards a Greek mindset and a Greek lifestyle. And then he did something that every, every good Jew knows very, very well. He set out to destroy Judaism forever, to wipe it off the face of the earth. He took possession of all the gold and silver in the temple treasury and began to rebuild Jerusalem in the form of a Greek city. He made it illegal to possess a, a copy, a scroll of the Torah or to read the Torah out loud. He forbid the circumcision of Jewish babies. The worst thing he did, though, is he desecrated the temple. Desecrated. He essentially turned God's house into a, a place of prostitution and false worship. He ordered that the great altar of burnt offerings be replaced by an altar to Zeus. He brought in a statue, a graven image of Zeus into the holy place and desecrated that as well. He began sacrificing unclean animals, pigs, on the altar of the Lord, if you can imagine, just to make sure, just to rub it in the noses of the Jewish people to let them know that this place was now a place of Greek worship and not their religion. And as history tells us, this ongoing unfolding of Antiochus's evil is the stimulus for what we know as the Maccabean Revolt, where the Jews rose up, took up arms, and over seven years of fighting battles against a professional Greek army. They were successful by the hand of God in, in running the Seleucids out of the land of Israel. Now, the word Hanukkah means dedication in Hebrew. And that's the core part of the story in the celebration. Once the Greeks had been driven out of Jerusalem, the leader of the revolt, a man named Judah Maccabee, ordered the cleansing of the temple and the rededication of the temple so that it might be holy before the Lord once again, now I'm going to read a text of, of history to you from the book of 1 Maccabees. Now, don't freak out as I say that. I'm not reading Scripture. This is part of what we call the Apocrypha. But 1 Maccabees has some excellent history in it, and it has a very solid uh, description of the Hanukkah story in it. So let me read it to you. This is 1 Maccabees chapter 4. It says, Then Judah and his brothers said, See, our enemies are crushed. Let us go up to cleanse the sanctuary and dedicate it. So all the army assembled and went up to Mount Zion. There they saw the sanctuary desolate, the altar profaned, and the gates burned. So Judah and his ragtag army had been fighting their way to Jerusalem. They've chased the Greeks out, and now they go up onto the hill and they see for themselves what this man has done to their house of worship. It says they tore their clothes and they mourned with great lamentations. 
And they sprinkled themselves with ashes, and they fell face down on the ground. And when the signal was given with trumpets, they cried out to heaven. Then Judah chose blameless priests devoted to the law, and they cleansed the sanctuary and removed the defiled stones to an unclean place. Then they took unhewn stones as the law directs and built a new altar like the former one. So they completely, this altar that had been desecrated, they wiped it out and they buried all the stones. They got rid of them and they built it from scratch. They also rebuilt the sanctuary and the interior of the temple and they consecrated the courts. They made new holy vessels and brought the lampstand, the altar of incense, and the table into the temple. Then they offered incense on the altar and lit the lamps on the lampstand and they gave light in the temple. They placed the bread on the table and they hung up the curtains. Thus they finished all the work that they had undertaken. Early in the morning on the 25th day of the ninth month, they rose and offered sacrifice on the new altar of burnt offering that they had built. At the very season and on the very day that the Gentiles had profaned it, it was dedicated with songs and harps and lutes and cymbals. Great celebration. All the people fell on their faces and worshiped and blessed the Lord who had prospered them. So they celebrated the dedication of the altar for eight days. And there was great joy among the people, and the disgrace brought by the Gentiles was removed. Then Judah and his brothers and all the assembly of Israel determined that every year, every year at that season, the days of dedication of the altar should be observed with joy and gladness for eight days. That's the story of Hanukkah. Now, the legend that grows out of it, the legend's actually not in that retelling. The legend that comes out of it, and you probably learned this, I learned this in grade school, right, in public school, that there was one day's worth of sacred oil found in this you know, desecrated temple to light the lamps inside the holy place. And so God provided a miracle to his people, stretching that one day's worth of oil to last the entire eight days of the rededication process. Now, that's a legend. There really isn't any historical source for that, but that's a legend that has grown, and it's a celebration that even today our Jewish friends will, will have a great, great party over, right? And it's sometimes referred to as the Feast of Lights because our Jewish friends will light candles and, and turn on lamps in recognition of this great time. By the way, when you hear the story of Antiochus and what he had done, does it help you to understand more and more about why the Jews in Jesus' day hated the Gentiles so much. That was still fresh in their memory. And so, yeah, again, history builds on itself, right? Understanding the intertestamental period and what the Jews had suffered before the time of Christ helps us to hermeneutically to understand what's going on when we open the Gospels. One other interesting note from this story, just something to think about here. Notice that although Hanukkah isn't prescribed in the Old Testament, Jesus is present there in Jerusalem to observe it. Interesting, huh? Now, it's possible that he was just, just being a faithful Jewish guy, and that's what faithful Jewish guys did on Hanukkah, or it's possible that he saw real value in celebrating that type of historical moment where God sovereignly came to the aid of his people. Now, maybe that's working too hard to find something that's really not there, but some have made this case. Think about Christian holidays that we celebrate like Christmas or Easter or any day in the church calendar, they are not prescribed for us in the New Testament. Yet we see value in, in memorializing biblical moments in history and celebrating those things. Did Jesus establish a precedent for that here in John chapter 10? Just something to think about. Because I know that there are some people that object to the celebration today, Christians that object to the celebration of Christmas and Easter. It's a pag they call them pagan holidays. Talk amongst yourselves, debate it, and get back to me. <laughs> Did, we'll pick it up on the underground, maybe. Did Jesus set the precedent here? Okay, let's keep reading in verse 22 because we haven't gotten to the diagrams and maps yet. So more context in verse 22. The, the, the verse continues, And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico or colonnade of Solomon. Okay, so there's my excuse to give you some diagrams. Uh, this section of the temple, now I know a bunch of you guys have been on the Temple Mount. Some of you guys have been with me on the Temple Mount. And it's, it's quite an exciting thing to see what's still there. This section of the temple was called Solomon's Portico because allegedly a portion of it was still standing when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed Solomon's temple back in 586 B.C. At least that's what some of the sources tell us. 
And then sources tell us that Herod the Great, in, during his reign, he rebuilt the portico as he expanded the Temple Mount and, and built it back to where even bigger than when it was in the days of Solomon. Of course, we've never seen it because later it was destroyed by the Romans in the year A.D. 70, but we do have some solid details to work off of. Josephus, the Jewish historian, gives us quite a bit of detail, including the size of Solomon's portico. Some of the digs that took place in Jerusalem in the 19th century by European uh, ar uh, archaeologists found solid evidence of this particular, they sometimes call it a porch or portico. So it appears that it ran along the east side, east side of the temple, along the outer edge, or out, or just outside of the, the largest part of the temple, which is known as the Court of the Gentiles. And if it's on the east side, those of you who've been on the, on the top of the Mount of Olives, you're looking down at it. So it, face, it would face the Kidron Valley and then the Mount of Olives. So here we go. Here's, I'm going to give you that. Oh, boy. So I'm going to turn my back to you to describe some colors, Adam. Lots of colors. Okay. So I've shown this to you guys before. This is, the, this is the, the Jerusalem model. It's in Jerusalem today, just outside the shrine of the book where the Dead Sea Scrolls are. You can go and walk around it. It's a massive, massive uh, model. So the, the purple, the purple uh, arrow over here, if you've been to Jerusalem, you've been on the southern steps, right? That's the most common entrance into the temple. If you've been to Jerusalem, I guarantee you've taken a picture on those steps. They, they're still there. Some from the first century, the time of Christ, still there. Coming in, the, the green dots just represent this big area we know as the court of the Gentiles, the, the outermost court. Um, the red portico here, this is a portico. This is called the royal portico. This is where if the, if the Roman procurator was in town, he would stay there. When the Sanhedrin met, they met in the royal section of the temple. That blue strip is Solomon's portico on the east side that runs the length of the, of the east side of the temple. And I've given you a couple of th other things. See the pink arrow? That points to a little gate that goes into the women's court, which is the outermost court of the inner courts, if that makes any sense, the women's court. That's called the beautiful gate. And that's important. We see that in Scripture as well. And then lastly, this yellow circle it's the only gate on the east side of the temple. It's called the Eastern Gate or the Shushan Gate. Today, it's often called the Golden Gate. And some of you guys have seen that as well. Let me give you a picture of what that gate looks like today. Now, this is looking up from the Kidron Valley. There's, there's the, the Eastern Gate sitting there, rebuilt by the Ottoman Turks in the 16th century. But it's completely sealed shut, as you can see there. So here's, a, here's an up-close up close look at it. It's beautiful. So this gate give, would give you the quickest and most direct access into the inner courts of the temple. It's a very important gate. Ezekiel speaks of it. In Ezekiel 43 and 44, he prophesies that the glory of the Lord will come into his temple from the east and through this gate. So as you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look at that gate, there's a high probability that that's exactly the place that Jesus will someday walk into when he comes back to the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, and through that gate, even though it's sealed shut. And there's a funny story that goes with that. Because of that prophecy, which was known by the Ottoman Turks, the sultan at the time, a man named Suleiman, he knew that prophecy, so he's the one who sealed this gate shut. He was afraid that the Jewish Messiah might show up during his reign. And he sealed it. It's like, I think it's, I want to say, 16 feet worth of stone deep. So it couldn't be broken open. And then, just to make sure, he built a Muslim cemetery right in front of the gate, thinking no, no Jewish holy man would walk through a Muslim cemetery to walk into that gate. What's interesting is Ezekiel also prophesies that that gate will be shut in Ezekiel 44. So, all kinds of interesting stuff here. 500 years later, that gate is still shut from the days of Suleiman. Even though in several of the wars that have taken place in the Middle East, armies have tried to get through it. It still remains shut, and it's waiting for Jesus to return. Okay, back to Solomon's portico. So this is an artist's rendering of what it probably looked like once you were inside that colonnade. And it's beautiful there, right? So it's open air. So if you looked to your east, you would have seen the Mount of Olives. But it, has this, it had this wooden roof, and it was lined by these columns as you, as you went along. Here's why this matters, because you're like, come on, Jeff. I know my wife is. 
She always tells me later on when I get home. She's like, really that much detail? Okay, this portico is mentioned prominently several times in the New Testament. Okay, in Acts chapter 3, we read of a miracle happening near that beautiful gate. Peter heals a lame man in the name of Jesus. This miracle happens, Acts chapter 3, and the people all rush to Solomon's portico, and that's where Peter stands up and preaches this important message. And he says, men of Israel... I didn't do this. This was done in the name of Jesus the Nazarene, right? Who you handed over to Pontius Pilate. So Solomon's portico is one of the earliest preaching sites of the early church. And then later in Acts chapter 5, we we read that this was the usual place that the earliest believers gathered for fellowship and to witness about Jesus. So uh, what I love about this is, you know, we're sort of nomadic. We meet wherever we can. That's what they had to do. Early on, they met wherever they could. That was, that was their MPR. There you go. That was their gathering place as the early church. And it makes sense because all kinds of people passed through this area and they gathered for social interaction before they went in to bring their sacrifices and do their prayers. So it, it made for a perfect place for the early church to witness. Okay. Are we all, are we all caught up on the context? Well, let's look at what happens then. Look at verse 24. So Jesus is walking down the colonnade. It says, The Jews then gathered around him, or they surrounded him. <clears throat> and they were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ or the Messiah, tell us plainly. Now, the word there that John uses for gathered around is more literally translated encircled. And what he's trying to describe here is something like an ambush. Jesus is walking down the colonnade. We would say he's minding his own business, right? He's not teaching. He's not speaking to crowds. He probably has some of his disciples with him, John included, right? And these Jewish men who are likely, again, members of the religious establishment, important guys in Jerusalem, they surround him. And in a hostile manner, they demand that he give a complete and direct answer to their question. Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? It's better to say Messiah than Christ because Christ is a Greek term. Messiah is a Jewish term, right? Are you the Messiah? And I think it's safe to say that they are in a state of agitation. And why? Because I shared this earlier, because of all the division. Jesus has just spent months speaking in ways and using these figures of speech that have caused division among their ranks. You get a sense that behind the scenes, these Jewish leaders are fighting amongst themselves. Who is this guy? So they want a plain statement out of them, something that they can respond to. Now, based on how Jesus answers in the next verse, I don't think these guys have good intentions. I don't think they really want to know who he is. I think there's a a nefarious plot at hand. Basically, what they want to do is say, if we can coax a very clear admission out of him that he's the Messiah, then we'll have something we can charge him with. And that's really what they're seeking to do at this point. So what does Jesus respond? Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. So as always, Jesus knows the hearts of men, and he doesn't fall into their trap. I feel like I would fall into those traps all the time, (laughs) but Jesus doesn't, okay? He's well aware of the political baggage that goes with this term Messiah, and this is why context matters. This is why history matters, because every year at the Feast of Dedication, what do you think was driving the hearts of the people? Jewish nationalism. They're fired up. This is the time when they get to remember the days of Judah Maccabee. And the rebellion against the Greeks. And here the Jews are today, and the Romans are oppressing them, and they're fired up. So if Jesus says in that moment, yes, I'm the Messiah, clearly, man, that could have unlocked a chain of events that would have gone really bad and not furthered the plan and purpose of God. So here he plays it cool. He says, look, you ask who I am, but I've told you already. And I've given you plenty of evidence for you to come to a conclusion. And that response is designed as a rebuke to these men, to the hardness of their unbelieving hearts, because they had heard Jesus' statements. If they didn't hear him personally, they'd heard it through the grapevine. They knew exactly what he had said. They just didn't like it. They just didn't like what he said. And Jesus says in verse 25, what about the works that I do? They testify about who I am. 
Had these guys not heard about the lame man that had been healed at the pool of Bethesda or the, the man born blind, how he was healed at Siloam? Of course they had heard that. Of course they had heard that. So Jesus says, not only have I told you, I've shown you. And in fact, when we survey the Bible, you know, God doesn't do miracles for no good reason. God doesn't go, I think I'll do a miracle today. He does it with a purpose in mind. And it's always the, the miracle supports the word going forth. Right? The miracle or the work supports the statement. And that's, that's just important for us to know. It's not either or. It's both and. Right? Word and work. Word and deed. They go together, hand in hand. The word is preached and the work support it. By the way, that's true of our witness today as well, isn't it? That's true of our testimony. We speak the gospel truth to people, and then we support the message of grace by showing people by our lives that we're a gracious people. And that's what gives us credibility. I spoke about that at the outset of the message. If we're going to speak to people, we've got to build a platform of credibility where our lives line up with the message that we promote. So the problem for these men in Solomon's portico that day was not that Jesus had withheld information or that they were unaware of what he had said, or that they didn't have enough information to make a decision. This was simply a stubborn refusal to believe his words and to see the glory in his works. They had hearts that just wouldn't believe. And once again, the same thing is true in our world today. How many of you guys have gone out and you've witnessed and you've, you're just banging your head against a wall and people will not believe? We've all experienced this, right? The same thing is true. The number one obstacle to people, tr uh, people trusting in Jesus isn't that they don't know who Jesus is or they don't know what his claims are. It's the pride of man's heart. It's the stubbornness of man's heart. It's his refusal to submit to God. It's his love of sin. It's his desire to control his own destiny and not submit. That's what you're facing whenever you witness to somebody. And it's a lot. There's a lot of obstacles there, right? In short, natural man and natural woman, they're spiritually blind, they're spiritually dead, and they're enslaved to sin. And the only way to overcome those things is what? God has to do a work. Period. We can't talk anybody into the kingdom. Now, it doesn't mean we, can't, we shouldn't be faithful to talk, but we can't talk people into the kingdom. God has to do that work. That's the whole point of verse 26. So drop down there. And we peeked at this verse last week, didn't we? Because it's so important to the argument for what we call election and predestination. Verse 26, Jesus tells these men a very hard truth. He says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Or you're not among my sheep. And then the contrast in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. So the men in the portico that day don't belong to God's flock. Jesus is clear about that. And that's why they don't believe. It's why they don't believe Jesus' words. It's why they don't see the glory in his works. And the hard truth is there, they're unable to believe. Man, this is a tough one, isn't it? They're unable to believe. And we've seen this before. It's scattered all over John's gospel. I'll just refresh your memory with a few passages. Chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How many people? None. No one can come to me unless God does something first. The Father draws them. And in case they didn't get it, just a few verses later, he repeats himself. He says, For this reason I've said to you that no one, how many? No one can come to me unless it's been granted to him from the Father. Then we read in chapter 8, Jesus asks, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot, cannot hear my word. That's hard language. Then he explains, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you're not of God. So the reality here, Jesus was the original sovereigntist. And I'm going to avoid using the Calvin word. Okay, I'm just going to say sovereigntist, just so I don't stir up unnecessary controversy. The original sovereigntist. He didn't hesitate to teach this truth about election over and over again, just as Paul does later in his letter to the churches, and then after Paul, Augustine, and then after Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and the Puritans, and Jonathan Edwards, and Spurgeon, all the way up to today. Faithful preachers 
teaching what the Word says from beginning to end. Here's the problem with this doctrine. Sovereignty is a biblical doctrine that is universally hated by human beings. It just is. And some of you, you can testify, I can testify that when I first became a believer, I didn't want to believe this. It was hard for me. Hard for me to accept this. Here's why we don't like it. Because it makes God very great and it makes us very small. And it makes God very great and us very small in the most important thing of life, salvation. And we just don't like that. Our flesh resists that, right? Sovereignty makes us completely dependent upon God and His grace, and it forces us to lay down our pride, to lay down our desire to control things because we can't control this thing, and it's so big. And on top of that, sovereignty is this great mystery, and built into it is this tension And so we resent as human beings this idea that I can't fully grasp or fully understand this while I'm living in my limited flesh. It drives us crazy. It does not change the fact that it's all over the Bible. And that's what we have to realize. So here's the deal. In order to hear and see and believe in Jesus, something first has to happen to the human heart. Something that transforms us. That spiritual blindness that we have has to be overcome. That dead heart has to be brought to life. Otherwise, none of us would ever feel the inclination to turn to God and be saved. And we can't do it. Only God can do it. That's the testimony of Scripture. So let me remind you again of what I the point I made last Sunday. Jesus doesn't say here, he doesn't say, You're not my sheep because you don't believe. He says, correctly ordering it, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. And those are two different things. I talked about it last week. It's a difference of priority and power. God's the priority. So salvation is not our doing. We don't belong to Jesus because we were smart enough or spiritual enough to make our own decision to choose him to be saved. Because that would give us every right to boast. And none of us will boast before God. We believed in Him because we were chosen to be part of His flock. And then within time and space, we were sovereignly drawn by the Father and born again by the Spirit. He took away our blindness and He brought us to life. That's what's going on here. For those of us who are saved, this is, I mean, tell me, am I the only one that thinks this? If you're saved, you're like, this is so clear. (laughs) It's so obvious. And it'll drive you crazy if you let it. Why won't people believe? It's such a gift, right? I mean, am I crazy? Like, this is such a gift. Just trust in Jesus. And they won't. Why do we feel like that? Like, it's so clear to us because God has done this work in our hearts. That's, That's the only reason. That's the only reason. So here in verse 27, Jesus says to the Jews in Solomon's portico, you don't listen to my voice. You don't know me. You don't follow me. If you were my sheep, you would do all those things, but you're not. Now, as we read on, that idea of sovereignty is not left in isolation. It leads to the next big theological point that Jesus makes, and that is eternal security. So know this. God wants us to deeply understand the mechanics behind salvation, that it's from Him alone. And one of the reasons why He wants us to to grasp this is because God's sovereignty leads us to the truth of being eternally secure. The two things go hand in hand, that God is sovereign and we're eternally secure. Otherwise, it depends on who? Us. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. We do not want that. If your salvation depended on you, any part of it, you would not make it to heaven. So you want God to be sovereign. But because we belong to God as a sheep, because He's sovereign over salvation, we are utterly secure. So let's go back to verse 27 again. We'll read through verse 29. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Now notice there, that is an obvious claim to deity, isn't it? Only God has the power to grant eternal life to someone. No human being can make that statement. Correct? That's that's power and authority that only God has. And then he says this, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me, remember we looked at that last week, the Father has the sheep, He gives them to the Son to be saved. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Guys, listen, I don't think there is a stronger passage in the entire Bible on this issue of eternal security than this one. Jesus not only gives eternal life to a sheep, but He guarantees the security of the promise. They will never perish, he says, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. It cannot happen. It will not happen. Very, very strong. In Romans 8, Paul tries to, the best way I can think of it, tries to describe the vastness of this promise in his language. Here's what he says. There it is. For I'm convinced. Look at this list of things. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. And I'm thinking, he's, he's like, how many things can I list here? None of those things shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate Jesus' sheep from the shepherd. Absolutely nothing can snatch a born-again believer from the hand of Christ. How would that work anyway? You've been born again, sorry, now you've got to be unborn. Can't happen. It's not possible. And here's the thing. If just one of us could fall away, it would mean that Jesus has failed in his mission. Because remember what his mission, he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me and I will raise them up on the last day. If any one of us, just one, could fall away, Jesus will be a failure in his mission. And here in verses 28 and 29, we're given this beautiful picture of two sets of protective hands, which of course... I, I see Kim here in the audience. Allstate, right? You're in good hands. I mean, I, as soon as I read that, I'm like, oh, I see that picture of the hands, right? Two sets of protective hands. Jesus has this in his hands, and then you see the Father's hands wrapped around his hands, right? And I know that's anthropomorphic. God the Father doesn't literally have hands. But the word picture that John's giving us here, that Jesus is giving us through John, is that there's this overwhelming power that holds us firm. Because there's no being in the universe stronger than God the Father, right? No being. Satan and his demonic forces are powerful. No match for God. Not even close. So any spiritual thief that would try to get at your salvation has to go through these two layers of omnipotent power. Can't be done. Can't be done. So your security is bound up in the very character and nature of God himself. And that is such a comfort especially when we're going through hard times, right? We're wrestling with sin to know that we're held firm by these two sets of hands. Now, I know that some people, misguided people, will teach that, that a, a believer can remove himself from Jesus' hands. I mean, the, some people will teach, no, no outside force can, but you can remove yourself from the Father's hand. But that completely undermines what Jesus is teaching here. He says, no, none of you will perish and nothing including you, can snatch yourself out of the Father's hands. Not even you. I mean, is there anybody here that's prepared to say, I'm willing to put my will up against the Creator. I'm willing to, to match the power of my decision-making against the Creator of the universe. No. No. It's too powerful. Of course, the reason that some people teach that, that you can remove yourself from the Father's hand, is because they really badly want to teach the fact that in the first place you put yourself there. Again, to control that, to, to feel like that we have that, that choice, right, from the strength of our own will. So logically, the way they would say it is, look, if you put yourself into the kingdom, you can certainly walk out of the kingdom. And I know how that makes logical sense, but again, it betrays the testimony of Scripture on both of those sides. Friends, our being saved simply doesn't depend on us. Because if it did, none of us would be saved. We're just not that good. We're just not. The fact is, it's up to God. And, and I'm going to give you another passage. Paul bluntly lays this out in Romans chapter 9. It can't be more blunt than this, right? He says, For he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. He's the one. You need mercy. God's the only one that can give it to you. No matter how much you will, no matter how much you run, 
It depends upon God. So again, here's the deal. If your salvation was based on anything in you, then yes, you can undo it. But if your salvation rests on the fact that the Father marked you out and gave you to the Son to be saved, then it's based solely on the character of God and the finished work of Christ, and you are eternally secure. That's what sovereignty teaches us. Now, look at verse 30 really fast. Verse 30 is a sermon series in itself. So I am going to barely touch on it today. Okay, I'm going to mostly leave it alone. Let's put it that way. But look at it, because this part of Jesus' argument in verse 30, I and the Father are one. I mean, mind blown, right? Imagine the Jewish men in that portico going, excuse me, (laughs) what did you just say? I and the Father are one. So so get this, Jesus using his wisdom evades the, the talk of Messiah because of the political stuff going on. But then he goes way beyond Messiahship, doesn't he? He's like, I'm going infinitely beyond just being Messiah. I and the Father are one. And he drops that mic bomb. Mic bomb? No, that's not it. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I just pulled an Adam, didn't I? You know what I meant. So, but think about this. He's saying Yahweh and I are one in essence or in substance. Wow. We are one in attributes, in power, in authority, in will, in purpose, in mission, all of those ways, and yet still a unique second person within the Godhead who's not actually the Father. Now, I don't have time for Trinitarian language today. We're going to have opportunities in the coming months or years however long it takes us to get through this, right? But for now, understand how it fits in the argument because this oneness of the Father and Son connects back to verse 29. Here's how it does. When you are in my hand, Jesus says, you're in the Father's hand. And when you're in the Father's hand, you're in my hand. Because we're one, right? Because we're one. So it's their omnipotence and their oneness that is our ultimate guarantee of security. Nothing can separate father and son from each other, and nothing can separate us from them. You see how all that works? That's why you're eternally secure. It's beautiful. Okay, so how do the Jewish religious leaders react to this? Not well. (laughs) But they understand what Jesus is saying clearly in verse 31. They picked up stones, it says. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They correctly understood what he was saying here. Because if Jesus is lying, he deserves to die. Right? That's the law. He's, he's a blasphemer if he's not telling the truth here. And he deserves to die. So they, they pick up stones because they believe that's the correct sentence. How often do we hear this lie from the world? People go, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. You hear it all the time. People who, people who have barely ever picked up a Bible and just flipped through it, right? Oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. The Jews in the first century begged to differ. That's why they wanted to stone him on multiple occasions, because they knew exactly what he's saying. Okay, let's wrap this up. How are we doing? As I was sitting back and trying to process through all this uh, this week, the thing that kept coming back to my mind was just the promises of God. They are the promises of God are something to behold. I, I, you would do well to spend time each and every day reading a list of the promises of God and reflecting on them and meditating on them and memorizing them and cherishing them in your heart. And especially this one, the idea that nothing can come between you and your Savior for all eternity. This is a truth that lasts well beyond your life into all of eternity. Nothing can separate you from his love. And maybe that's, maybe that's your, your practical application for this week is to begin to list out the promises of God and to go over them all the time. Now, the promises are great, right? But they're only great if they can be kept. And that's why we talk all the time and Grant leads us in song all the time about the faithfulness of God. If God's not powerful enough to keep the promise, if he's not faithful enough to keep the, problem, keep the promise, then, then we have nothing. We have no security. But God is 100% faithful. 
He always delivers on his promises, and you can bank on that. And his children, if you're a parent, you know this. Children need security, don't they? They need security. They have a deep-seated need to be a, a part of a family where they have confidence in their father, that their father loves them, that their father will provide for them, that their father will protect them, and that the father won't just kick them out of the household the first time they fall short of the father's standard. We need that for our security, and that's what we have in this important doctrine. The Lord wants you and I to know that we are, as his adopted children, it's true that we will sometimes undergo loving discipline when we wander into sin or we stumble into sin, right? And that's from a good father, and it's good for us, right? Can I get an amen? I know we don't like that necessarily. That's an amen. But even when we stumble into sin, we can know that he has accepted us because of the sacrificial death of his only begotten son. That he still sees us through the eyes of Jesus, right? And he doesn't just kick us out of the household. So our salvation will always remain eternally secure. Again, not because of our performance, but because of the goodness and grace of God. Amen? May we always sing of that love forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we are uh, this morning overwhelmed by your goodness and your grace and your promises that you always keep. Oh God, help us to sing from our hearts. Help us to sing your praises, even today, this week, forever, Lord, that we would sing of your goodness and your grace and that we would mean it from our hearts, that we truly would dig down deep to try to grasp things that are Things that surpass knowledge, Lord, but you want us to strive to seek after these truths, how big they are, how powerful they are, that we are safe in your arms. God, I pray for anybody who's here this morning who is struggling with this assurance that they should be in the fight. And the fact that they're in the fight means, Lord, that you are with them, that they are your child. And I pray for those who are here this morning that haven't felt anything at all this morning and they're not in the fight and they're, they're just living in sin and perhaps even taking you for granted. God, I pray that you would, talk, you would speak to our hearts, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would build us up and encourage us where we need that as well. Lord, we know that you always do that, but we ask that you would do that in a special way today. God, thank you for, for this place, for this body. May we now sing praises to you in both grace and truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.